Well, good evening. Thank you for coming. You know, we gather tonight on National Indigenous Peoples Day. And we do so on the traditional territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh. You know that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommended that there always be a land acknowledgement before any event. They said it is an act of reconciliation, and I believe that's true. And it's not something that's new just to now. The act of acknowledging the caregivers of indigenous lands happened long before Europeans arrived. It is a tradition where you will acknowledge the custom and the custodians of the land. So I want to share a just a little bit of history about the Squamish, the Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh before we get started. So often we hear these land acknowledgements, but we don't really hear about who the people are or the nations that are involved. So the Musqueam, the Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish are three independent nations whose people have called these areas that are Vancouver, the North Shore, and Howe Sound, home for long before Spanish and English explorers came here in the mid-1700s. The Musqueam are a community of about 1,300 people with a strong cultural connection to the lands that are along the south slope of the Vancouver, of the Vancouver city and up along the uh, Fraser River estuary. And their name comes from, they were known as the people of the river grass. And they had a name for that river grass, Musqueam. The Squamish, which is quite interesting when I was doing this research, as they're known today, the nation was formed in 1923, when a wide variety of uh, villages who were socially, economically, and politically organized came together and became known as the Squamish Nation. And their territory includes the Burrard Inlet, English Bay, False Creek, and Howe Sound watersheds a massive territory of about 6,700 square kilometers to more than 23 communities. And the Tsleil-Waututh come from what we now call the eastern end of Burrard Inlet, but they have been there for generations as well. And for them, they say the land was rich with remarkable resources, and they believe that they are charged with the stewardship of looking after and maintaining these lands in a way that fits with their holistic vision to seek balance um, of ethical growth that meets their values. So I find it really quite interesting so that here we are tonight, it's National Indigenous Peoples Day, we're on the lands of three First Nations and we're talking about affordable housing in this region with deep Indigenous roots and those three First Nations are now in a very interesting position to offer one of the solutions to affordable housing. So the question that we're already going to be, or that we're going to be discussing tonight is, is affordable housing possible in the Lower Mainland? But not just the Lower Mainland, Victoria, Kelowna, Vernon, Nanaimo, Agassiz. Uh, the numerous regions around the province are all being affected by what's happening here. So is affordable housing possible? Or is it an oxymoron, a forever contradiction in terms? And I'm, I'm fearful that we may never see real affordable housing. How do we unravel this puzzle? That's the question that's being put forward tonight. It's an issue that crosses virtually all economic 
uh, strata, not completely, but having a good job or having two good jobs is no longer enough to buy or rent in the region. So our intention is to share ideas for the next hour and who knows, 30 minutes, uh, to determine if there's a way to solve the affordable housing puzzle. And if we can, how? To help us answer that question, we have a distinguished panel. I'm gonna start with an introduction to Bern Christmas, president and CEO of EDGKAI, Edge, Edge uh, Development Corporation, which is the economic development arm of the Squamish uh, nation. And they are set to move forward on the first phase of the Sanok development that will eventually be 11 towers with 6,000 units that could become home to 9,000 people. Sitting next to him is Joy McPhail. She is the chair of ICBC, a co-owner of Out TV, and the chair of the Opening Doors Committee that was commissioned to examine ways of unlocking doors to homes and making housing affordable. And since the issuing of that report, Joy, so much has changed, much to talk about tonight. Sitting next to me is Minister David Eby, who in addition to his position as Attorney General, is the minister responsible for housing in BC. Minister Eby has been vocal about his frustrations with approval processes and other impediments to increasing the supply of housing that, in theory, could help stabilize price, prices. And at the far end, Mr. Bob Rennie, one of BC and Canada's foremost minds in the real estate sector. Now, I also want to point out that in the audience right now, we have Dan Fumano of the Vancouver Sun. He's covering the event, and he will also be asking questions of the panelists. But we're not limiting it to just me and Dan asking questions. We're going to open it up to the floor. Um, Mike Muneer in the, in the back there. Mike, just uh, if you have a question, please you know, catch my attention. I'll get Mike to come over and bring you a microphone. But please wait for Mike to bring the mic so that when you're asking the questions, the people who are at home can actually hear the question. Otherwise, we're going to have to paraphrase it for them and we could get it wrong. So, uh, and for those of you who are at home, if you want to send in a question, you will see that there is Slido online. You can send in that question. We're uh, monitoring those questions. We'll put them to Mike, and when Mike has them, he'll be able to ask those questions to the audience and into the room. So, it's time to get started. Can we unravel this Rubik's Cube of a puzzle that is affordable housing? And if so, what's the first step? How do we go from here to there? Um, it's as though we don't have the roadmap right now. But to set the stage, uh, Bob Rennie sent me in a video about a week, a week and a half ago that I would like you all to see. And Bob's gonna explain what you're seeing on camera to see what the dramatic increase in housing prices in Canada is, not just related to Vancouver, but Canada in relationship to the rest of the world. Bob, I'm going to ask Amy to roll the video in just a moment, and will you please explain what we're seeing and what were the driving so, factors? You're so, going to correct me, are you? Yeah, th this is a video that somebody sent me about a week and a half ago, <laughs> and I sent it to Stu just out of curiosity, and so you're going to play it now. We're going to play it now. And Amy, can you roll that video for us, please? So while you're watching the video, what Stu sort of took something off of what um, Minister Eby, David and I uh, had a conversation for the Urban Development Institute about two weeks ago, and something in there Stu thought might be appropriate here is that 
you know, ho housing is a science. We, we're, it's, it's politicized, we all have our opinions, but sort of the metrics that are affecting housing today, and I think the reason Stu and I talked like this is it might guide the conversation today, is we have to look at immigration. We're going to have uh, more deaths and births in Canada by 2036 and in British Columbia by about 2032. We have to look at, at jobs, the over 35,000 jobs that are coming to our region and primarily to downtown and the Mount, the Mount Pleasant area as we're looking at housing. And one of the numbers that I've used when you, know, when you look at this graph that housing is up 165% since the year 2000, well since the year 2000 it's up another over 20%. So 20% of 165 is another 32%, so we're close to 200% up since the year 2000. But one of the factors affecting housing here is our homes that we live in are tax-free. And in, 19, in 2006, clear title housing in our region, owned by over 55-year-olds, was 66 billion. Today, there's over $400 billion in clear title housing owned by over 55-year-olds, and 114 billion of that is owned by over 75-year-olds. So that's money that's being transferred by the living as opposed to transferred, transferred traditionally uh, in, through, through estate planning. And then you look at the pressures of, on construction that we can't get away from. Even if, if Minister Eby could interfere in municipalities and approve 100,000 homes right away, how are we going to build them? There's 9% uh, job vacancy rate in our construction industry. At lunch today, all I'm hearing from developers is they can't get steel, they can't get concrete, and the prices of, of, of wages, and that's affecting everything that is, is going on right now. And one of the number one things I think affecting housing, and it's a hot topic, is the, politi the politicizing of density and of supply. And uh, David's been talking a bit vocally is, can the province and can the feds offer some political cover and get and offer um, some real incentives or solutions so that municipal governments can move ahead and offer the supply that's needed to tackle some of these problems out there. So that's here we are. Here we are, uh, and as in my opening remarks, I indicated that First Nations in the region can play a very important role. Uh, Bern, this is not news to you, uh, but many people are asking, what exactly are you bringing to the equation, and how can you help to change the dynamic here in Greater Vancouver area? Uh, well, <clears throat> first of all, I just want to uh, thank you for that acknowledgement on the, uh, the land. And uh, it is a very important day today. It is National Indigenous Peoples Day. I'm not a Squamish member. I'm a Mi'kmaq from the East Coast. So I appreciate the hospitality that's being, uh, being uh, stated. Uh, you know, the Sanak Project, uh, what it brings is uh, many, many things for uh, the people of Vancouver, BC, and Canada, if I may dare say. And of course, the, the nation itself, it is a... Uh, it is a homecoming of sorts. It is our traditional lands. And uh, a decision was made to um, repatriate those lands through some negotiations. And as a result, we have now in a position to 
add 9,000 potential families to a, a plot of 10, roughly 10 acres uh, of land on uh, Falls Creek, Burrard uh, Street area. So uh, I think what it brings is the uh, nation government of Squamish, along with the business arm, has said that this is important, important for our housing needs, but I think it's also important for the greater, greater society. So a uh, decision was made, let's go for it. 6,000 units will, will bring to the table, so to speak. So what's the process advantage that you have over, let's say, the city of Vancouver? Well, it's, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's a complicated, <laughs> quite, uh, complicated uh, answer, but uh, I, I think basically it boils down to this. You have a nation government that passes uh, laws uh, combined with the fact that there's a federal statute known as the Indian Act that also creates uh, processes. And uh, the two combined uh, basically allow us to um, speed progress in getting these type of developments uh, permitted and uh, checked out environmentally, all the usual sort of things that developers have to go through or municipalities have to go through when they're trying to uh, decide if a property should be granted a, a license to do what it has to do. So uh, it's, um, we've just learned the, the secret of making it go quicker by about <laughs> five to ten years. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big difference. You know, Joy, when you uh, issued the opening doors report, uh, it, you start by calling for a, a call to action to change the planning framework to one that proactively encourages housing. In other words, the rules of the game governing how much housing gets built and quickly, they really have to be updated. And what you're hearing, and from even when you uh, issued that report, what are you thinking now is uh, the process that we can go through to get to that point? Um, well, again, thank you very much uh, for having me here, and it's a particularly important day, Burned. You're absolutely right. Um, so our report was released a year ago, actually a year ago this week. And yes, our first call to action amongst five was to speed up, uh, expedite the planning uh, and approval process at the municipal level. Um, you asked, you started off by saying, is this uh, housing crisis solvable? And I would answer that by saying it has to be in order for us to save literally our uh, well-being in our community. To, uh, the community will die. We were talking about this at our table here. If there's not affordable housing, our communities will literally die. And it will just be a bunch of em either empty houses or old people like Bob living in uh, <laughs> uh, living in some nice housing with me, with along with me. So Joy and I now live together. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, the municipalities, it's not a one-size-fits-all, quite interestingly, and I bet you anything Minister Eby will say that as well. There are huge successes in some of the municipalities. One that we rarely talk about, Surrey. Surrey is having some success in the planning process. They just, uh, just uh, uh, passed the uh, Fleetwood um, community plan, which is going to add 100,000 units uh, of housing, and they're doing it in a very organized way, top the whole community uh, planning it at the top, and then the details will be planned 
um, according to the official plan. Um, and they won't, it seems to me that the NIMBYism will just simply not um, flourish in a plan like that because it's being, the whole community has uh, um, developed the broad plan, not just neighborhood by neighborhood. And it really, uh, the impediments to um, community planning or municipal planning, one is that there's an election cycle that's only four years long and projects often take longer than that to plan. But there is a politicization of housing, uh, largely stimula stimulated by nimbyism. People not wanting, uh, people who have houses don't want more density in their community. Um, so that's a problem, and um, uh, uh, it may be that the higher levels of government have to step in with the municipalities and mandate greater density for which they are incapable of, uh, of uh, bringing about themselves. That's an interesting point. <laughs> Sorry, David. Oh, David. Oh, over to you, David, <laughs> yeah. based on what Joy Sorry. just said. Do you have the ability to do that? So uh, currently, there are two authorities that the provincial government has. One is on provincial government-owned land. Uh, we can do what we wish uh, in terms of building and ignore local bylaws. Uh, we've done that in a handful of cases. Uh, Maple Ridge uh, is one, uh, where the city just couldn't bring themselves to approve supportive housing to close an encampment in that community. A uh, similar kind of situation uh, in Nanaimo. And then with a city's permission, so in Victoria, we're using that authority with the city's, at the city's request to build uh, really significant uh, supportive housing buildings in that community to respond to the need. So that's one authority we have. Uh, the Minister of Municipal Affairs has another authority that can override local government land use decisions that aren't in the public interest. Uh, I don't think I'm aware of it having been used. Um, there is a strong tradition in British Columbia is very different from Ontario. It's very deferential to local governments around land use planning, housing, and so on. And one of the messages that I've been trying to deliver to the cities, and it, it really doesn't matter the mayor, like when you talk to the mayors, they will all tell you the same thing. We're doing our part, we're pushing as hard as we can, we're delivering uh, the housing that's needed. It doesn't matter if it's Oak Bay or West Vancouver or Coquitlam or Burnaby or Surrey or Vancouver, they all say the same thing. Everyone wants to be seen to be doing this. I think they believe that there's political support for improving housing availability, but the actual results are the problem. And, um, you know, I could uh, rhyme off and probably will before we're done, uh, many projects that are stalled. And so my project right now has been to educate uh, as best as I can uh, the city councils and the communities about why we need this housing. 100,000 people moved here last year. That was a 60 year high of people moving here from other provinces and other countries. It just hasn't happened in 60 years. It happened at the same time as the MLS listing service had their lowest level of inventory in December. Uh, that had ever been recorded in the history of the uh, Metro Vancouver MLS service. And so uh, trying to impart to these folks the need for housing, we, our government funded housing needs studies for local governments so that they could have an idea. City councils, if you have the opportunity to speak to them, and I know there are a lot of people in the room who have, are like just this side of volunteers. Many of them have other jobs. They don't have any background in understanding what the population demand is, what the housing needs are in their communities. Uh, 
what's a reasonable ask of someone who's proposing to build housing, what isn't. Uh, and so a group of people around the table start listing all these things they'd like to see and maybe we should take five floors off and like maybe the shadow on the park is a problem. And uh, what color is that shed gonna be? And then before you know it, uh, eight years are passed. So this is the work we're doing with municipalities to try to drill down on what can we do. Uh, and, and I've said if we can't arrive at a solution that we can all agree to, um, then the province will probably have to take action to address this because otherwise um, it's not gonna be addressed. And the, that message uh, has been well received by the urban mayors. They wrote an op-ed calling on the province to have enforceable targets for them. Uh, how much housing do you believe that we need to be approving? Um, you know, we're willing to do our part, but at the provincial level, you have to uh, ensure your permitting is lined up to be able to help us deliver that kind of uh, level of housing, which you know we're totally open to. And then UBCM issued a report, we're building more than enough housing, please. Um, take off. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing and using more polite language than I feel like the report sent to me, but so there's a division within municipalities themselves. So it's not easy. Not going to be easy. It's on, on the one hand, it's very easy. We have the population growth and we need the housing. We need adequate housing for the population growth. On the other hand, uh, you can see with SNOC what the market would do if they were allowed to to respond to the demand that's out there. And one of the really interesting things I saw about Sanok was there was a, a reader poll, Vancouver Sun, uh, who's hosting this conversation about what do people think about the Sanok development? Do they support it? Do they not support it? And I was like, ooh, this is gonna be ugly. Uh, so I, I voted on the poll, support the development, I think it's awesome. Uh, and then it flipped over uh, and it was the best, it was like two thirds uh, supported the development. People are just so frustrated with the process, so glad to see the housing built that everybody knows is needed. I think it's a political winner. I tell it to every political candidate, approving more housing is a political winner faster. I really believe that. And I, and I think the conversation has shifted uh, quite dramatically. I want to turn now to Dan Fumano, who's in the audience. Dan, uh, please direct questions to our panelists. Thank you, Stu. Can you guys hear me okay? Yep. Okay. Oh. Hello? No, you're, you're mic'd. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Thanks. <laughs> Trust the technology. Sure. Okay. Thanks. Uh, so I'll start with a bit of a tricky question. Uh, obviously, we know that housing is, housing affordability is an issue uh, around BC and in other parts of the country as well. Um, but I mean, here in Greater Vancouver, the benchmark price for a detached house is a little over $2 million, the latest numbers I saw. The benchmark price of a condo is a little under $800,000. If we agree that we would like housing to be more affordable, what do you think would be a good result a year from now or two years from now or five years from now should those benchmark numbers go down 10%, go down 30%, stay the same for a few years, only increase by five or 10 or 20%? I'd like to hear what each of our panelists think about that. Starting with whom? Well, we start with the minister. Yes. Yeah, it's <laughs> classic um, uh, question because it defines uh, the problem by the price of the existing housing, and it's a really challenging question for politicians, right? Because the headline will be, oh, EB says that housing prices should be cut by 30%. <laughs> so there it is. Write it down right now. We have it on tape. So I define the solution to the problem is that people are able to find housing that fits their needs within what they can afford, the, the budgets they can afford. And that may or may not uh, require a decline in the value of individual family, single detached family homes. You're sitting beside Michael O'Dane, 
who's obviously a legend in the development industry, and um, his company builds homes at UBC, where I live. Um, and they build them in large quantity, and they build them very quickly, and they are at a roughly, I don't, I, I would uh, defer to the realtors in the crowd, at about a 20% discount from downtown Vancouver. And I think, you know, it's, to my mind, one of the most desirable places to live in the city, Pacific Spirit Park, University of British Columbia, incredible. And the reason is, I think, that they are able to deliver that is that they have an approvals process that makes sense, that's intuitive, that's predictable, that they can build a certain level, that they, it doesn't take many years. And, and he can speak for himself, but like as an outsider looking at this, looking what his company is delivering uh, in my neighborhood, and then looking at what they would have to go through in across Blanca Street, as I was talking about over dinner, it's just like the building I live in is illegal. Um, the home that I live in is illegal across Blanca Street. And you just can't do it even. So um, I, I don't define the problem as we need to cut, uh, give a haircut to everybody's home valuation to a certain level. I define the problem as can we find different ways to deliver housing more affordably to home buyers and to renters? And, and the answer to that regardless is increased housing supply. Bob? Because I know you've got thoughts on this, Tom. Yeah, so uh, UBC is 30% less than downtown Vancouver. But uh, the, the, the problem that we have is you're concentrating on Vancouver, and we have to look at the solutions within the region. This is Greater Vancouver. Yeah. But This is all the way to... This is Greater I, I don't Vancouver. think it's $2 million for Greater Vancouver. That's the real estate board for, of Greater Vancouver. The I don't know. You know the numbers better of, than anyone. I don't of, know. Of housing. But the problem that we have is when Burns doing rental, you're going to be $5 per square foot. With construction costs, so that it's not really a solution. When you look at Fleetwood, right now we're breaking $1,000 per square foot in Surrey. So those prices that you're saying, a miracle will happen if they'll stay the same without an abundance of supply. And the problem we have with supply, as I mentioned earlier, if we do approve 100,000 homes and David can offer some political shielding to our civic government, so Thanks, Bob. We'll get supplies. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I'll take that. Yeah. And, and he can't do it before October 15th because it'll be too politicized before the civic elections. I don't buy that. I don't. It should, it should be an election, an election issue. It should be, but the problem is some people are going to attach themselves to that, and other people, like if Colleen Hardwick are going to disassociate themselves from that. And lose, and, I hope. Uh, she, ha she, 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 ha she has... That's a, a non-political statement. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll make a political statement that we should back her a bit so she won't be a counselor anymore. <laughs> but but I, we're, it's, it's toxic without real supply, but I don't know how we're going to deliver it. Like, it has to be looked at so holistically. But we, we're too Vancouver-centric, and we have to look at the region. I've been doing this for 47 years. Life was, a career was good to me in the first couple of years, but we built in Burnaby. We didn't, you look at the word Vancouver, and I'd like to remind everybody that Surrey will have a larger population in the city of Vancouver by the end of this decade. But we're not going to be called Metro Surrey. We're going to be called Metro Vancouver still. But it, it has to be just looked at so holistically, and Burns $5 per square foot rent at $2,500 for a one-bedroom and 1000 a foot at Fleetwood, which is 500000 for a 500-square-foot one-bedroom. It's, that's not getting me to, afford, to affordability. 
Because if, you if you're buying a $500,000 home, it's a lot of money to you. It's only cheap to somebody looking for a million dollar home. So I, I, I don't know what the solution is, but we need it really, really fast. I'll go with what Joyce says. It should be, but I think the minister has to be very careful that it becomes a political hotbed for the provincial government rather than the goal was that it should be for civic government. If I could just add um, on this discussion uh, about affordability, looking at, David's exactly right, you get into a numbers game where you're starting at a, a plateau way up here. It's just a lose for everybody. Um, and there are other factors that affect people's uh, aff the affordability of housing. Public transit, what are your commuting costs? That's been turned on its head in the last year, or last, I should say, five months, where people would, um, what is it called, drive till you qualify? So people would move out to Cloverdale, Surrey, e even Coquitlam, in order to qualify for a mortgage that they could afford, and they were willing to commute and pay the costs. And now we have people living in Langley who could afford to live there and raise their family, um, and they're paying double the cost for their commuting costs. And it has to be, we have to look at it as a package. So public transit becomes hugely important in this discussion. And it's one of the best ways to also densify. Uh, uh, now I know the Broadway plan is a little bit controversial, I'm not quite sure why. But um, the, uh, uh, you add the public transit and you can densify in the neighborhoods around that, just as the provincial government is doing, tying the funding for the um, public transit to, to the, uh, uh, the, the infrastructure uh, financing to densification. Holistic, yes, and it has to include public transit in that. And the other thing I would say is, um, the Lower Mainland is very special because we have the lowest average wage in Canada. I know, well maybe not, I, I, I don't know about the East Coast, sorry, Bern, I honestly don't know about, uh, but I bet you actually Halifax wages are higher than ours here. So we have a, a, an incredibly low average wage here, which just exacerbates the problem uh, uh, outrageously. So everybody, you got to start paying people more. <laughs> Bern, well, when we, we take a look at the Squamish Nation, but also the coming together of Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish as a development uh, entity, what do you foresee you can add to help to maybe try and stabilize some of those prices that Dan is getting uh, speaking about? Yeah, I, I think uh, our uh, our solution is just provide more more product and. Uh, more units and, uh, you know, MST, the Musqueam, Squamish, Slave-A-Tooth uh, triad, that's, uh, that's a, a good example of what's happening with uh, Fee Simple Lands. And, um, and then us and Chikai will develop uh, other on-reserve properties, um, similar to Sanok, so we're just gonna keep going. But we, we can't wait, uh, our, uh, our nation members uh, are looking for homes that are affordable and, uh, you know, that are sustainable, environmentally friendly, um, have been um, rigorously uh, watched and managed by uh, its government. And so, uh, yeah, so our solution basically to answer it is just, we're just going to build a lot more. You're going to keep building. Yeah. 
that's what we have to do. Um, you know, the statistic I saw, or it was mentioned, 100,000, there's a shortage of 100,000 approximately. So we're, we decided let's add 6,000 right off the bat. Let's, let's keep going. And uh, that's our plan. That's our solution. Dan, you have a follow-up question? Yeah, I, I, I thought what Joy, the point Joy raised about the importance of public transit and infrastructure and having complete communities that are denser. As she mentioned, the Broadway plan is before Vancouver City Council right now. We might maybe get a decision on it tomorrow, hopefully, um, one way or the other. But I, can, I know that there are a lot of people in that Broadway corridor. There is, I, I'm not sure exactly how many, but there is, anecdotally, I can say there is some sentiment and, and beyond the Broadway corridor, but people who don't mind the idea of more density, don't mind the idea that there could be taller buildings and more neighbors, but they're worried about the existing amenities in their communities, like schools, which of course are funded by the province. So some of the schools in the Broadway corridor are already way over capacity. There isn't a school in Olympic Village where there's been an empty plot of land for 10 years. So I'd like to hear both what Joy thinks, if there is something that the province and the cities can do to kind of work together better, and, and then as well the minister and either of our other panelists, um, if there is something that they can do together to, if cities are gonna approve more housing, how do we make sure that there's enough schools for kids to go to, parks, other things like that? Well, I'll start because our report addressed this. The Opening Doors uh, report did address uh, the way uh, community amenities are funded now by municipalities. And it's not a one-size-fits-all by any stretch. There's two ways. And if I get this wrong, please uh, step in, Bob. But there's the, the um, development cost levies that are legislated. The list of what uh, governments can charge, municipal municipalities can charge uh, under development cost levies, it, it's listed, it's legislated. And then there's CACs, community amenity contributions, which is basically, if asked me, an extortion uh, a method by city councils. I'm not running for office, you can tell, right? <laughs> and it's, it's a Frankly, it's a one-sided negotiation. Developers come and they sit at the table with municipalities, and the municipalities just keep saying, nope, that's not enough. We need more money from you to uh, fund um, parks, uh, community centers, daycares, etc. Not schools. They're separate. We can talk about that in a, a minute, or David can talk about that. Um, but so uh, the, our report said there has to be a whole reform of this kind of funding by city by city municipalities, and that basically that community um, amenity costs uh, charges should be eliminated because they're so nefarious, they're ephemeral. It can be one day one person is paying this much, and the next day another developer is paying less or more favoritism, et cetera, and expand the list that of uh, charges that are eligible under the DCLs, the development cost levies, which is a piece of legislation that, uh, and I know that, uh, David, I know that the provincial government is, has done reports on that and uh, are contemplating such things. Not con I, I'm not speaking for you, but the uh, uh, development approval process review was a review that was conducted by the provincial government in the last several years that suggests exactly some of that. Well put. So 
great news. Uh, we're building the Olympic Village School. Uh, and uh, the, the school board, the, the last update I heard from the education minister was that the VSB was sorting out a lease, uh, lease issue related to the land. And uh, anyway, uh, good news. But uh, your underlying your question, Dan, is something that like makes me crazy. There is always a reason not to build more housing. There is always like, there's too much shadowing, the parking, there's not enough school space, there's, you know, the, the local uh, this, the uh, old that, there's, there's always, always, always a reason. And, and the decisions that get made and the, the more that I've been exposed to it, so BC Housing right now is the biggest, I would say, and I say this a bit cautiously with Mr. O'Dane in the room, uh, that uh, BC Housing is, in partnership with the development industry, uh, the biggest residential housing developer, develop, de developer in certainly um, British Columbia, probably Canada, and possibly North America. There's six to 7,000 units BC Housing is developing right now. And so I see the worst of it, like the worst. S Surrey, I know Joy, you said nice things about Surrey. I'm gonna say a bad thing about Surrey. I, literally today I was at um, uh, Unity, uh, uh, is a nonprofit in Surrey. They wanted to build a, a six-story building in South Surrey for uh, mixed housing, so some units for adults with developmental disabilities. Like, these people are the most beautiful, charming, kind, lovely adults living with disabilities. Like, it'll break your heart to talk to them about how they were really hoping to live in their own apartment, and unfortunately, the city voted it down. Uh, BC Housing funding, they had the land, nine neighbors called in against it, there were like 60 calls in favor of it, and the city voted against it, like, to see those land use decisions get made, and like, the reason was that it was too tall, it was six stories, uh, and so it's beside a gas station and a strip mall, so I guess, yes, those are lower structures, um, but the view, like, not super impaired, right? So the, the thing is about this, Dan, is like, uh, the schools will get built, you know, we're, we're rebuilding from the, you know, from a deficit around schools in Surrey, in particular, like, you know, uh, thousands of new seats opening in Surrey schools. Um, and I understand why people are apprehensive about that, given some of that history around portables and so on. But, um, but the alternative is a San Francisco crisis and we're headed that way like you can see it you can see it in Abbotsford you can see it in communities where they've never had a significant homeless population um, and if we're not building for the population growth um, that's where we're headed and it and, and you know I don't have a lot of frontline San Francisco experience um, but it's not a great situation and it's a place that really restricts the development of housing and um, and is like us West Coast temperate kind of weather attracts a lot of people from all over the world and, uh, and also from across America. And, and we're headed there if we're not careful. And uh, to Joy's point, like this is a livability question and it's not just for the lower mainland, it's for South Vancouver Island, it's for the Okanagan. And it's even in smaller communities where the issues are totally different. The municipalities are dying for a developer to come and build. Like Prince Rupert is dying for somebody to come and start building multifamily in Prince Rupert for the port, for the 800 jobs here the port's adding. Um, so, you know, to go to Rupert and say you're not approving stuff fast enough is a bit like, so cities are all very different, but, but we gotta get this figured out and, and I'm very committed to that and I know the government is. Mike, I understand we have a question from Slido. Yeah, actually, Stu, two questions leading in Slido are both rental related. So I think I'll toss both of them at the panelists to see how you think. The first one is, in Surrey, there's a desperate need for below market rentals, yet the housing is not part of any of the neighborhood concept plans. 
including the Fleetwood neighborhood plan. Can the province dictate below market rentals for neighborhood concept plans? That's the, the, uh, the first question. And the second one related to rentals is, why do municipalities not offer rental housing built by municipalities on long-term lease land with affordable rents based on family income? So I'll take the first one. Um, my legal opinion, take it for what it's worth. Uh, uh, the uh, province can dictate legislatively conditions on cities, including a percentage of below market housing and certain types of zones and all zones, whatever. We can do that by law. Um, and uh, also, um, that would be, uh, and, and I'm increasingly understanding, a uh, very sensitive and significant departure from existing provincial approach to municipalities. So this is exactly the conversation we're having with municipalities right now. Because my feeling is, as a municipality, you should be able to say, okay, here's where we'd like to have the housing, you know, here's what we want it to look like, whatever. And we're still obviously very much in favor of transit-oriented housing, and, and you know we'll work with municipalities where there's investment to get those commitments. But but you know as a mayor and council, you want to say this is our industrial area, this is our housing area, this is our commercial area, whatever. You know, okay. But like, not we don't want to take the housing. We don't want to have the housing. We don't want supportive housing. We don't want uh, this kind of affordable housing. We don't want rental housing. That you don't get to say that. And um, and so. Finding a way to get there with municipalities is, is the big challenge. If we can do it cooperatively, I would like to do that because in California, one of the things that they did with their legislative reforms was they imposed it on the cities and the cities fought like tigers to uh, get out of it and were endlessly creative to avoid it. And so they're in their third or fourth iteration now. Um, I'd like to avoid that if we could, um, but, uh, but maybe we won't be able to. But in any event, um, that's, that's the, the countervailing piece on that. The other piece is a, is a core recognition of something the federal government knew a long time ago and the provincial government did a long time ago when we were building large volumes of affordable housing. It was like co-op housing and other uh, MERBs and MERPs, uh, the federal uh, accelerated capital cost allowance for rental buildings that built just thousands and thousands of rental units. It was too successful. Um, the, that government can be involved in, in uh, providing more affordable housing and in, in, in incenting the market to build more affordable housing. And there are structures and ways that we can do that, whether controlling the land cost or, or providing tax benefits or, or otherwise, uh, or directly building it uh, by itself. But as I say, like BC housing is full out right now and, um, and can't build all the housing we need. So we need the private sector to be building the housing that frankly they wanna build and people need. So, Byrne, when you hear a question like that, what's your response? Well, it really, uh, to me, it, it's very simple. Um, there's over 200 First Nations in this uh, province. Why aren't the developers going to those First Nations? Why go to municipalities? <laughs> <laughs> that's, my, that's my solution. <laughs> Did you bring business cards? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's lots of opportunities. You know, like, I, I don't say it in a flippant manner, but there is obviously clearly, uh, you know, uh, great relationships between First Nations and uh, municipalities and the province and, and Canada. You know, there's a sector there that should be, uh, you know, brought into the discussion. Uh, I don't have to tell my colleague here that in BC, this is Aboriginal title lands. 
that's a big, big stick, people. It's a big stick. So I, I'd suggest that. And any developers that want to do stuff here in the traditional territory of Squamish, the 6,700 square kilometers, yes, we're open for business. So we're ready to do it. Bob, I see you thinking your way through this. Joy just leaned over that when Joy was doing her study, and it's a conversation had a few times that, um, you know, when David used his voice in Port Moody, it really moved ahead, and 2,000 units are, are, are going ahead, but that, that was through just lobbying. But what I've thought is if we could get the province and the feds involved and offering, I'm like a broken record on this topic, and offering civic governments uh, $10,000 per door on rental units that are approved within 12 months, maybe it's 18 months, but somebody smarter than me can figure it out, but within a shorter period of time, and maybe $15,000 uh, per door on social housing, and $7,500 per door on home ownership that's below 1.5 million in Vancouver, and uh, say a million dollars in the region, but somehow in incentivize our civic governments to take the political risks to cause the supply. On creating affordable rental, the real solution is that if you mandate a certain amount of affordable rental per city, per municipality, and then the civic governments are gonna to have to figure out how much density to bonus in order to get Michael Adane to build subsidized rental. And it's just a really easy equation, but when you see six stories, a title, and six stories turned down for real social good because of nine neighbors that were vocal and we're coming into an October 15th election, do we need some sort of panel or ombudsman that we can go to, something that overrides the, the politicizing of housing? Because that was turned down just for, for political electability. No other, no other reason, because you know you can go to Dunbar, they get mad at four stories. Now we're going to Surrey, they're getting mad at six stories, but you get a comprehensive plan like Fleetwood, but does Fleetwood take in, should those stories be 10 stories higher so the bottom 10 floors are subsidized rental? I think that's that holistical, holistic solution that we really have to start to look at, and hopefully our provincial government can take some of that clout, because I think what Dan was saying, uh, before when we're sitting at the table is public sentiment has changed towards supply maybe not on the west side of Vancouver enough but it has changed toward towards supply and we should be taking advantage of that public sentiment so how do we create incentives to build more rental housing I can't imagine what the mathematical equations are that a developer would have to go through to justify building rental housing in this region, looking at all the development uh, hurdles that they have to go through, and then once built, they're told, no, you're not allowed to increase the rent, even though it's going to ensure that you maintain the building properly, that you're going to get a proper return on investment. How do we encourage more rental housing? Well, I think Bob just explained part of it, uh, which is its densification. It literally is if your if your cost your input costs are this much, it takes this many floors to have a, a developer not only break even but allow for a bit of profit because rightly so, um, uh, they're not in the uh, they're they're private developers, 
Um, there are um, incentives through the CMHC that uh, could be beefed up more in terms of financing uh, for rental construction. There's a whole program that the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation has right now. Um, it, it was going to be very effective, uh, and then interest rates have ballooned like crazy, which has really um, thrown a spanner in the works uh, around all, I think, all housing uh, construction. Um, and, and there are, there, there could be ways that uh, the provincial and federal governments uh, embrace incentives such as what Bob Rennie just outlined in terms of a per-door incentive. Our, our expert panel was taken with his suggestion um, that a, a good carrot would be that. And the flip side of that is that you have a, a, an incentive that perhaps is a little bit more stick, which is what David Eby was talking about, that if um, housing needs are established in a formalized way, uh, are agreed upon between the municipality and the provincial government, and if the municipality over a course of m months or years doesn't meet that housing needs assessment, um, then the provincial government can step in and mandate it. So it's a carrot and stick approach that you take. The, the problem is right now with construction costs skyrocketing and interest rates, the only solution to get the building built is higher rents. And that's not, that just flies in the face of affordability. So then you have to have some sort of incentivizing of bonus density so that they can build more rental to take the risk of construction and higher interest rates. You mean the, f the financial model is, the financing model is only that you have to charge yeah. higher so, rents. So yeah. you, you, you had a pro forma three years ago. It's just being approved. Well, now interest rates are up. Right. And construction costs are yeah. up. So higher rents is the only solution unless you had more density on that site to get a better pro forma. Yeah. So um, there, uh, I would add to um, Bob's answer again cautiously. Uh, if, if approvals processes can be reduced um, in terms of the time, I know that that is a huge, the land carrying cost, the carrying cost for developers is a significant additional cost in the, in the operation of the building. Uh, at the provincial level, we offer financing for rental housing, um, middle income rental housing. Uh, and that will be increasingly attractive uh, at provincial borrowing rates as, as bank rates go up. Um, it's amazing what is possible by providing that financing um, uh, to someone that is uh, building rental housing in terms of the affordability that, that, that they can then return back to the development through reducing their interest charges during the construction phase and it gets replaced by a takeout mortgage at the end so the money comes back to the province. It's a catalyst, it's not used up. Um, and BC Housing is essentially running a $2 billion bank that does these kinds of construction loans right now. Um, so that's another way that we can do uh, this kind of work. Um, I fear very much, um, along um, Bob's comments, that the window for this opportunity of building rental housing is closing. The pension funds, the insurance companies, the other big holders of large pools of money that look at rental housing as a way to ensure some cash flow, but also um, have their investment funds um, generating income and, uh, and I would say maybe even being socially 
constructive in the process. Um, you know, the, the, they rely on a certain return, they rely on a certain cost of construction, and their pro formas rely on this. And, and you know, when they go into an approvals process, there's a, there's a, a fund like this that wants to build a building on 10th Avenue in my constituency, and I try to use examples from my constituency because people are like, well, usually that for our community, but wouldn't you like in your own? Okay, my house is surrounded by towers. Okay, I'm fine with it. We love it. We love our neighborhood. So um, <laughs> just want to clarify that. So, but on 10th, uh, there's a, a lot that's a contaminated site, used to have a dry cleaner. This, this insurance company wants to build a rental building. Um, they've been waiting for two years um, to have their moment in front of city council and they're asking for 14 stories. And I said like, why are you guys only asking for 14 stories? What are you doing? And they're like, well, we can't roll the dice on some bigger project because that's going to put us into another approvals channel that may take additional number of years and then the project isn't going to be viable. Um, and so, you know, here Point Grey Village is struggling, like the stores are struggling, like there's desperate need for rental housing. This private company wants to build it. The city wants to do it. Like, every, And I just can't figure out why we can't get there. So that. Um, kind of thing drives me absolutely nuts, but I feel like the window for those kinds of buildings is closing, so we need to get them approved and across the line as quickly as possible. Burn. I think uh, someone should go and do a case study analysis on the approval process that the Squamish Nation did, and you'll be... <laughs> what? You'll, a one-page case you'll study. Be stunned. <laughs> you'll be stunned. It's all about time. Yeah, our pro forma is right on. Uh, because of time. It's not five, six years old, it's six months old, and we think that's old. Uh, especially in light of what's happening with the, uh, the uh, potential uh, interest rate increases on, I think it's July 13th, so the rumor says. Um, so it's, I agree, it's just a matter of time, how quick can you do it? And uh, I think, again, from the Enchkai uh, perspective, uh, the Squamish Nation has been able to go boom, 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 and voila, you got Sanak. David gave an example of UBC is doing boom, 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 too. So these models can be established, but I, I think that it's going to take some interference with the way cities are being run now because there's people running for council now that are anti-development. Flies in the face of all the... the the, the, the scientific metrics that we go through, but they may get, you can get elected today on no development. Mike, back to you, you've got a question. Yeah, I think room. we have a couple people in the audience here, so we'll try to keep track of them. Bob Ransford, you're up first. Um, more of a comment than a question to David, when you're struggling with this um, question about how much you intervene with municipalities, I want to point you back to 48 years ago when a, another NDP government realized that agricultural land was threatened in this province because of decisions that were being made at the municipal level on development of that land, and they exercised authority to direct what happens with land use over agricultural land in the province. And thankfully they did that. They took away the power of municipalities to determine what happened with agricultural land. And uh, that was for the benefit of all of the community. And I think that's what you need to think about when you think about how much you need to intervene to try and make sure we have housing. Thanks for the pep talk, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, did you have a, want to respond to that? It, it needs a big move. 
whatever is going to happen, we need to do something monumental because it's just, you know, I, I keep saying we've never tried oversupply. We can't get to oversupply because every building, every tower you see doesn't get construction financing until it's 60 or 70% sold. So if we can't get to oversupply, we need a big interference. And that's, that's political risk for our current government. But if our cities aren't taking the political risk, we're gonna need the big guys to step in. And maybe you need federal clout to do that too, because you'll need some political cover. But we need a big move, like the agricultural bank. So Bob, when you say that it, you need 60 or 70% of the units sold, that's a bank requirement, right? The that, banks take zero frickin' risk in that, any of this. That, that, really? facetiously, that built my career. Is, oh. is the, the, okay, the, I'm in favor of it. <laughs> no. If we're going to live together. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the banks, you know, it, it depends on how much equity you put in, but the way the development community works is you need in excess of 50%, it's usually 60 to 70% sold with 10% on your way to 20% deposits, yeah. so the banks put up the financing. I know, and so the banks put up the financing. I'm just saying in terms of a big, I was just thinking about this now, um, it, we need a big change, and maybe it is something to do with the uh, banks be required to do a different financing model. I know about risk, I, all of that, but the banks take zero risk <clears throat> and put it all on the developers who then have to put it on um, uh, have to sell a certain amount of uh, units in order to get their financing. It's so you would need the feds to cover the bank's risk that the developer hasn't achieved. It, uh, fair, could be, which is what CMHC was set up to do, and uh, maybe they need to broaden their mandate. But on rental, that's not sales, if CMHC or somebody came out with five-year money at zero percent, if you get going right away and the approvals go right away, you'll see rental build. Yeah. But okay. it's some sort of underwriting that's a big move. Y yeah. So the banks have to be at the table. Holistically. Holistically, yeah. Or financing from somebody. But financing has yeah. to be at the table. Financing that's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Mike, you have another question? Yeah. Okay, this is a question that uh, starts with uh, Minister Eby mentioned that UBC was 20% cheaper. Please ask the panel about the 99-year lease where rentals are set based on the building cost only and the land lease is repaid after the buildings are paid off. Why aren't we doing this with government land? Sure, so great question. So the the first um, uh, piece is this is, uh, I think, right. If we can find ways to control the cost of land uh, in terms of the overall development, and there's lots of different models, there are community land trusts, there are co-ops, whatever, then that's a really um, effective way to deliver affordability. Um, we're running into problems with uh, expiring leases in British Columbia. So the federal government about 70 years ago, um, 60 years ago, set up a bunch of co-ops on leased property uh, for a period of about 70 or 60 years. Uh, and so as you might imagine, uh, those leases are coming up. Uh, the properties are worth a significant amount of money. There's a bunch of buildings with seniors in them living on these lands that they don't own anymore. Um, and it's created a bit of a headache. So. Um, 
which is a real understatement. So uh, the, uh, the opportunity there is controlling the land costs. The leases do eventually end. Uh, South Falls Creek is another good example of that. And so we do probably need to think about what happens when these leases end, even with that model. But I agree with the, the core of the question, which is that um, by dedicating uh, land or having public ownership of land, you can control and support affordability. So that is behind the spirit of a bill that recently passed the legislature, Bill 16, um, which allows the BC Transportation Authority to purchase not just the footprint of the transit station, but lands adjoining the footprint of the transit station so that the housing that's delivered on and around the transit station is affordable housing because the people who use transit are the people who are buying and renting more affordable housing. And the, ir the irony is that the closer you get to the transit station, the more expensive the housing is. Um, and so we're trying to uh, control a bit of that dynamic by holding the land and the control that's associated with that. It doesn't mean that there won't be partnerships with private developers as we do with BC Housing to develop that, those sites, but by owning the land publicly, we're able to deliver more affordability. Burn. what happens as far as uh, ownership in Sanok? How's, how's that structured? Well, it's, uh, it's, owned by, it's owned by the nation. So it would be a The underlying a land is the nation's land. And those who would buy would, would obtain a lease? Yeah, yeah. That's how it works, yeah. Yeah. Very simple. Burn, you're doing primarily rental? Yes, rental, yeah. So what do we say to residents who don't want change? Like, you're already running into that burn yourself. Like, oh, that's to me? Okay. Yeah, yeah, but not just you, to everybody. Residents yeah. go, I don't want change. Yeah, um, you know, yeah, we face that at uh, Sanok and other, other projects that, uh, I'm not here to speak for them, that's, uh, that's another organization about MST, you know, they're facing the same thing. Um, I think we'll face it uh, everywhere else that we start uh, moving on different files, whether it's the real estate or energy or or fishing, whatever. Um, but in the Sanok case, you know, I think people, what they have to remember is uh, this is about housing, but this is also about um, a homecoming. Um, just imagine early 20s, you're in a, uh, on a plot of land, they're by, you know, what, what's, uh, Venue Park now, and then all of a sudden, government officials show up, put you on a barge, take you over to the other side. As you're leaving, your houses are being burnt down. So it's it's very dramatic, uh, you know what I'm saying here. But on the other hand, you know the nation are saying we want our land back. We went to court, got that land back. Settlement was made. We got the 10 acres, and there's some other other stuff that's not a liberty to speak to right now at this moment. But the point is, it's a the nation leadership and is saying, well, we want to do this because we're we're reclaiming our homelands, and uh, it is going to be done because we have to put affordable housing. It, like any other government, it has issues of uh, affordability for its, uh, its membership. So it has to create some units uh, for, uh, so the Squamish members can live there at a 
affordable rate. Um, so make them come home, um, bring our culture, bring our arts, bring our way of life to a land that was taken away, brutally taken away. And we want to allow Canadians, people of Vancouver, people of British Columbia, greater Canadian uh, population, come and join us in this celebration of coming back home. So it's not as simple as, are we gonna build a, a rental housing? Um, it just seems to be as part of the process. And um, uh, we found a way to do it through amazing leadership who've thought this through. Uh, we partnered with the developers, and we have financiers and government backing, British Columbia's helping, we've got the federal government helping. It's all been a nice little uh, um, uh, coming together of uh, the famous thousand points of light, so to speak. Uh, I think it was George Bush said that way back. But, it, you know, it's, um, it's from a, a heart-wrenching situation to a celebration is occurring. And uh, I think it's amazing. And uh, I think we're all very excited to be a part of it. Um, and it's been done in a very quick way. But it doesn't mean it's done in a quick way where you go past all those permitting, all those things that you normally do to analyze whether it's, uh, you know, was there an archeological uh, assessment done, an environmental assessment done? Yes, all that was done. But it was done in a much more efficient way. That's why I keep saying we should do a, you should do a study on that and figure out, well, how did the leadership of Squamish do that? Yeah, it might be a one pager. <laughs> But there, there was a process, and, uh, and it started with the Squamish people. The members of the Squamish people voted at a, I think it was 83, 87% said, we want to come back home. So it's where we are, and uh, I think a lot can be learned from, uh, by this process. Um, by entertaining into business relationships with the private sector and the government sector, and, and in this case, uh, Squamish Nation. And I, I'm sure there's other types of these scenarios that can be brought to bear uh, throughout this province. Uh, I, for a fact, I know that could happen. So, those are my few words yeah. there. So, so, Joy, you, you brought up earlier the fact that there's a, there are people who go, I don't want density, but what do we say to those people I don't want change. Like, uh, there has to be a message and um, it has to face reality. Uh, it's a very good point. NIMBYism reigns and it carries way too much weight in all of the decision making at the municipal level. Uh, because voices who show up are those that live there already and have single family homes. It, you do, the voices who are going to benefit from rental accommodation, a nice six-story uh, building with uh, their daycare nearby, or they'll be able to live close to their mom who's aging. Uh, those voices aren't heard at public hearings because they live somewhere else. And so what our expert panel suggested was that really the consultation should take place at the design of an official community plan. And this is done 
lots of places here in British Columbia, across the uh, country, and definitely in other jurisdictions in Europe, etc., where the whole city gets together and designs an official community plan that talks about where transit should be, where our schools should be, where where's the most efficient use of um, uh, our parks, and even protecting view cones and not shadows, that's too much beyond, but uh, uh, to help with. But, and so the official community plan then is, is designed by lots of voices of those who want to live in the city, not just those who live in the city currently. And then from the official community plan, zoning flows, uh, so that you're not having a, a uh, a building such as David described in, in Surrey, a six-story building uh, in, with a, on a, in a strip mall having to have what's called spot zoning, where the municipality says, we're going to look and see uh, on that one building whether the zoning works or not. And they vote it down. Or they extort money from the developer, as we talked about earlier, in the form of uh, community amenity contributions. So big plan where everybody's involved about who wants to live in the city. And then the zoning flows from that. And if you're bringing forward an application for approval that meets the zoning, com uh, uh, abides by the official community plan, you don't need a public hearing. Mm -hmm. So maybe a big plan is that the province could subsidize these community plans yes. and insist that they're in place in the next 24 months. But something Dan said at the table is a benefit of COVID is when everything was online at public hearings, a lot more positive voices came out. That's right. Because, um, stealing Dan's words, that how can a single mom give up a Tuesday hoping that she'll be speaker number 72? How, how can people put in that time? And not everybody's equipped for the booing that comes in a public forum when you're positive about development. So the online process has helped, but I, I'm all for the community plan as long as, I think it's Hemson's that did a study for the city of Vancouver, and there's be 144,000 new jobs in Vancouver by I think 2051. We're using 82,000, but that was a recent report. So whatever official community plan is created has to take all of those factors into consideration, not something that just gives us a Band-Aid for the way things are today. You know, Joey, you touched on a point. A few years ago, we did a, a show, the Vancouver Sun uh, real estate show, and there was a, a woman who came up from San Francisco heading up a group that would go, they would go to city councils and say, I'm that single mother, or I'm this, you know, young person or this young family that wants to move into this area. We want you to approve this building, and they said they were getting results. Is that a practical, you know, movement if we can get people to mobilize and say, put their voices forward? As, as you pointed out, Dan said it was happening online. Is there a way that we can get those voices out to say, I'm the person that you're afraid of having me move into your neighborhood? Well, there's, there certainly is, um, a, 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 I will say, a prejudice against renters. It shows up in polling, et cetera, that neighbors, that people who own their own homes think that renters are a lesser quality neighbor, which is ridiculous. Um, so certainly the more visible people who want to move into the neighborhood with their children to be close to mom and dad, because of good daycare, because of good schools, the more visibility and the more voice we can give them, absolutely, that's the best thing. And 
to Bob's point, you're exactly right. I mean, I actually attended public hearings online for the very first time in my life because I could. L look, what if you were trying to um, uh, speak at the uh, discussions now around Broadway plan? Aren't they into something like their 490th day or something on it? Or fourth day, anyway, um, uh, on it. Um, and, but imagine you're... You're, you're, you're following you're, it close. <laughs> Um, but imagine if you had a one-year-old and an eight-year-old at home and you, had to, you wanted to participate in a discussion. You couldn't. So continuing of the online. But having, having those ridiculous public hearings are ridiculous. <laughs> okay, okay, the questions are flowing. Mike, you've got another question. Yes. And I'm going to go to Dan. He's got another question that he wants to ask as well. Okay, great. If we increase supply of housing yet allow speculators to buy it as their second, third, fourth, or more investment property, prices will continue to rise rapidly. Why not ban multiple homeowners from all new builds? An example being, you buy it, you live in it. Should I take this <laughs> So if my idea works, it's mine. If it doesn't, it's dead. <laughs> so my, my thing is that uh, it, this is a much broader discussion, but I, I do think that the foreign buyer tax has caused racism because the foreign buyer tax wasn't um, aimed at people that look like me. It was aimed at our, our Asian population. But if, we're, if our problem is getting local wages into home ownership, um, I and Dan and I were arguing about, about, about it, the $5 million home really isn't a concern to local incomes. That should we look at that under a million and a half in Vancouver and under a million in the region is not available to foreign ownership? Wait till you get your PR card, et cetera. Somehow we have to protect that end of the market. And again, it needs a big move. I mean, these are tough statements. I don't think my industry will like me saying it, but we, we, we have to do something, or I, I don't know who brought it up, you were talking at your table, that we will have civil unrest if we can't get people into, in, into, into shelter. And you know, you look at the downtown east side now, we, we're going to have people that are earning minimum wage not being able to find rental or, or housing. So it's protecting that, that end of, of the market. Um, something else that came up with Joy's panel and we've talked about before is once your name goes on title, if you sell before three years, that it's way beyond capital gains and it's way beyond income tax that the lion's share of your profit will be taxed. And that allows that money to go into a bucket for uh, a housing fund. But once you've owned a place for three years, you sort of build a tolerance to it's rented out and you build a tolerance to your, your tenancy because people um, aren't speculators that become speculators. You bought for a reason that your money wasn't doing any good in the bank, so you buy an asset that maybe your mom and dad will live in, maybe you'll live in it if you sell the house, maybe it's for the kids, and you rent it out. Our rental supplier is a lot of those first and second buyers. But once they've owned it for three years, they've built a tolerance to that ownership. If it's gone up in value, they're more likely to just refinance it, keep it, than they are to sell it. So that rental supply is there. But you know, I, I worry that we've 
when with CACs, the way um, Joy talks about them, that we can't tax housing like we did cigarettes, because we did quit smoking, but we're not going to quit living in housing. But it's finding ways to protect that lower end of the market. Mr. Eby, you were ready to answer that question. Are you still ready to answer it? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my idea. Thanks, Bob. Um, so, uh, a couple thoughts. Um, one is that this issue illustrates the complexity of the housing problem that we face uh, in the sense that, as Bob said, um, a lot of people who are buying second, third homes, those that aren't doing short-term rental, and that's another issue that we need to talk about, but um, are renting out. And um, the reason why they're renting out is we have a speculation vacancy tax that targets if you leave the place vacant and you own a couple homes in, a, in an SVT area. Um, and that brought, um, uh, the latest number was uh, over 20,000 homes that were previously vacant back onto the market, which is a very positive thing because we desperately need that rental housing. The problem is that a first time buyer or a home buyer generally is competing with someone who's using the equity in their existing home to buy another property and they're being priced out and now they're not able to buy and they don't have the same opportunity that someone else did and now they have to rent. And so the complexity that comes is we're dividing a relatively scarce pool of housing units and deciding how to allocate them. Um, I disagree with Bob about the foreign buyer tax. It wasn't our government's tax, but we doubled it. Um, I think it's a good tax and I think it's a necessary tax because we're dividing and, and we're managing a limited pool of housing units. And I think it's okay to say um, that if you are uh, not a permanent resident or you're not a Canadian citizen, that you have to pay additional taxes. You need to contribute to the schools and all the nice things that, you know, you're not paying tax here. You need to contribute to the things that make this a nice place to live. So I think it's okay. I think it's defensible. In fact, we did defend it in court and we won. And, um, and so there is, though, a long and ugly history of racism in British Columbia that we need to be alert to. But, but at the end of the day, we're dividing a scarce resource. And if we make it less scarce, uh, then uh, we're going to have more positive outcomes in terms of who we're able to share it with and how widely we're able to share it and whether uh, people are able to buy two or three as investments and rent them out and whatever and, and it will have less impact on the people trying to buy. Um, so I'm not saying um, uh, that, uh, that I disagree with uh, any of Bob's uh, policy suggestions here. What I'm saying is the core issue is the scarcity issue. And if we can address the scarcity issue, we're going to solve ourselves a lot of other problems trying to devise policy mechanisms to, to deal with that. Dan, you have a question? Yeah, Minister Eby spoke about the, to the scarcity point and then also earlier about the closing window uh, to build rental housing. Um, we talked about rising interest rates, construction costs. I'd like to hear different perspectives on two questions. One is, if the province changes or caps the maximum allowable rent increase, what impact, if any, could that have on you know, big institutional capital that might be looking at investing in rental housing development? What impact could that have on rental supply? And the other thing is, are there other factors maybe that we haven't talked about that could either help or hinder the production of housing, especially rental housing, whether it's economic, political, social factors. Are there some other things that maybe we haven't thought about that could have a big impact on the future of housing supply in BC? Let's work our way down from Bob through to the minister. Bob? So, uh, on, on the what will impact it, you know, one of my comments was that there are, our, our last city plan in Vancouver is if I come in and ask for 
to build 100 rental units, a developer comes in, you should say no, but if you build 150, I'll let you do it. But the, you know, you, you bought a view cones shadowing every restriction that's there limits how supply, how supply is, is created. So the elasticity has gone. And they open the book and they just say no. So how, how can we get a lot more elasticity into, you know, Susan Anton used to argue it doesn't matter whether it's rental or whether it's condo, it's the built form that affects the neighborhood. So, so let's look at those built forms. And maybe if the built form is for rental, you let people build 50% higher. You know, it shouldn't have been 14 stories that's applied for. In this. It's the Safeway site, David, in, on West 10th. They should have applied for 28. Mm -hmm and got a really economically viable model, and they could have put, um, if you allowed that density, they could have put affordable rental, or a lot more affordable rental into it. But we, we just, we need elasticity. There's so much rigidity in the system right now that you can't get supply through. Joy? Uh, I'll answer your question from the point of view of the, the actual person renting. Uh, because it's way beyond my ken to answer anything else. But we actually looked at this in our expert panel. We had giant brains from the various universities do some, a study for us on rent controls, because I think that's basically what you're talking about, is uh, rent control, how that will help. And um, actually, our report examines all of this and has the study, shows the studies. But what um, the conclusions that were reached, uh, and I think this is a widely held view, is that rent controls don't work to uh, help greatly the person actually renting. Um, but what does work is for low-income people who need a boost to pay the rent for higher levels of government to give subsidies. And uh, I think David was uh, David outlined some of the programs that the provincial government, I'm not sure about the federal government, I, I don't know whether they do that or not. Um, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't. So that you take it from a point of subsidizing, helping the person who simply doesn't have the income to pay, but you don't cap the market with rent controls. Um, <laughs> That's what the study said. I'm just telling you what the study said. <laughs> Big brains. Um, but um, I wanted to say I, I wanted to say something else about renters, uh, because we talk about this uh, capital gains that, that on our houses we don't pay capital gains on our principal residence, and God forbid I'm not suggesting in any way that we should start uh, doing that. But what I do know is that the federal government doesn't collect $11 billion on average annually because people sell their homes and don't pay capital gains on it, the way they would if they sold their Tesla stock or their uh, Microsoft stock. Um, so fair enough, we're not suggesting that uh, that be changed. But what about helping renters that they get some sort of tax break as well? And that mm -hmm. simply doesn't exist now. People pay their rent with after-tax dollars and um, we just said to the federal government, hey, kids, you know, could you look at that? Like, maybe have a, um, a tax-free savings account for renters specifically, where they get to save more in a tax-free savings account because they're renters, et cetera. That's mm. one of the suggestions. Bern, how, how are you addressing this issue? <clears throat> uh, there is no, no cap. So there is no, uh, the, the nation government hasn't uh, uh, passed any law that's going to uh, 
contemplate that at this moment. And it's done that for a whole bunch of, my understanding, a bunch of policy reasons. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it, you know, it's, it's our land. It's, we have a, a different uh, regime. Uh, you have the federal, uh, federal government involved. Um, BC doesn't really have a say. That's just the way it is. <laughs> uh, the municipalities, they don't have a say. Um, you know, but you know, in seriousness, it's uh, it's a different regime, and uh, decisions are made uh, through that lens, and um, and this is why we believe Sanok is viable as a rental. Property. There's no there's going to be any discussion about capital gains, taxes, that sort of thing. There is uh, there is a regime where there'll be taxes paid by Enchikai and West Bank to our government, um, but it doesn't have all the other little intricacies that drive up costs that you normally would see. So that's why I keep saying, if you're having problems, come join us, <laughs> sail with us. And then and seriously, also, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other First Nations in this province that would love to get involved in Prince Rupert housing crisis or, or wherever, you know, it's just, uh, they're there. So that's, that's how we're dealing with it. Well, you, you found the Social Democrat at the Terminal Club. Uh, you know, I used the right bread plate and everything. I knew this moment would come. Uh, the, uh, a defense of, uh, of uh, our uh, rent control regime in the province um, and uh, what, what we will not uh, contemplate in terms of rent control for the reasons outlined by Joy. Um, the current rent control system is based on the tenancy and for tenants as a matter of policy and it's been the case for both BC Liberal and NDP governments predictable annual rent increases for tenants are important it's important to know how much rent you have how much your rent's going to be plan your life your mortgage payment is predictable over the length of the term of your mortgage tenants deserve the same kind of certainty in their housing there's good policy reasons for it any economist will tell you that it restricts the construction of additional rental housing. I will tell you that the big restriction on the construction of additional rental housing in British Columbia is not our rent control system. The big constraint on the construction of additional rental housing in our province is our development approvals process at the municipal and provincial levels. Um, and that is uh, fixable in a way that can still provide certainty to tenants and also a degree of certainty to landlords. We shifted policies on farming government. The previous government had inflation plus 2% as the uh, allowable annual increase for existing tenants. And we got rid of the 2%, but we replaced it with a system where landlords who invest in the capital in their buildings are able to increase beyond the annual allowable increase, an additional 3% beyond the annual allowable increase to recover some of the costs of those capital improvements uh, from the building. And what we were trying to balance was you know, the, the fear when you have rent control that a landlord will not invest in the building, not maintain the building, uh, and to reward those landlords and recognize those landlords that are keeping up their buildings with additional rent, um, and also to recognize that the tenant has an improved experience in a better maintained building and 
and we hope, uh, believe, we'll find out, I guess, uh, uh, will believe that that is a worthwhile additional, uh, that they're paying additional rent for a reason. The, the rent control that we will not no. contemplate, that I've been really clear about, uh, I've told the advocacy groups, um, is uh, there's, a, there's a push on for rent control by unit. So the tenant moves out, and then the new tenant that moves in moves in at the old rent rate. Um, I think that that, and I'm, I've been told, and I believe it when I talk to people who build rental housing, that that would be fatal to new rental buildings in British Columbia. Um, and that government would essentially have to build all of the rental housing. And as I've said a few times during this presentation, that is just not something that is possible given the current levels of construction government's already doing and what needs to be done uh, in terms of rental housing that we need. So we're, we are trying to find a balance here. Uh, I will defend that rent control. I believe in it. Uh, I do understand that it will cause some people who might otherwise build rental housing not to do so, uh, but that is a deliberate policy decision. And there's a second deliberate policy decision about the rent control that advocates are pushing for, some advocates are pushing for, uh, that we will not take that step because of that impact. So we've been here talking for about 90 minutes so far. Uh, I want to ask each of you, have we come any closer to answering the question, can we make housing more affordable? You know, short answers and then we'll wrap up because we could go on all night long and I don't know, do we find those answers? Um, we'll go opposite direction. I'll start once again with you, Mr. Eby, and down to you, Bob, okay? Um, Burn, Joy, then Bob, and then we'll wrap it up because it's a fascinating topic. It's one that is so complex, it's going to be very difficult for us to find those answers. But it's important that we're asking these questions. Yeah, so I think um, what my takeaway from the discussion is um, we all, and I don't want to speak for other panelists, but I certainly found a lot to nod along with my, with my colleagues on the panel about the issue of supply and the need to bring on more housing faster and, uh, and that that is ultimately the answer to the challenge that we face. Um, and, uh, and it's not just this panel, it's, it's politics generally right now. I mean, Pierre Polyev and I agree on... What? Pierre Excuse Polyev me? and I agree on the major housing issue that we face, which is the, the inability to, for people who want to build housing to build the housing that we need because of various layers of policy. And when you have that level of agreement across the political spectrum, um, then I think maybe you're on to something in terms of what the issue is. So there's lots of points of departure between Mr. Polyev and myself, but I, um, but you know, I, I think there is a growing consensus um, about uh, what needs to be done, and you heard it on the panel here tonight. Uh, thanks very much, Rev. Yeah. Thanks to thanks, my colleagues. Burn. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, I think the solution is uh, a model of that is Sanok. I think it can be done. You know, the people keep saying there's a shortage of houses, uh, homes. We're going to bring in over 6,000 uh, units. That's going to be a small village of about 9,000 individuals. We're going to reduce the, uh, the, uh, the carbon footprint. Uh, there's going to be hardly any parking. It's going to be bikes and it's going to be transit and uh, buses and, and other things. Um, but it is a uh, uh, it is something that uh, uh, has been thought through very carefully. You know, I, again, I don't want to be sounding very flippant here when I do all these kinds of things. Just you know, come work with us, la la la. There is process. You know, the nation has set up a process. Um, it's not a lawless development. It is a very regulated. Uh, 
body. Um, as an example, um, we talked about the Residential Tenancy Act. You know, we've, we've adopted certain aspects of it. Um, the only thing that we haven't adopted is the, uh, uh, as far as I know, is the capping of rents. But there's other things that, you know, like you gotta make sure that you got, uh, you know, fire and police services and, you know, the, the welding joints and the sewer system are done to code and, you know, it's there to protect uh, the people that are gonna be living at these, uh, in these homes. So put that in your mind that, ah, he's just talking about a lawless Wild West, uh, literally a Wild West uh, uh, a piece of land. No, it's a very uh, heavily regulated by the, uh, uh, the nation government. Uh, Enchkai is a business uh, in business with a developer, uh, West Bank, and uh, we're trying to uh, solve the crisis that's facing this, this city, this province, and I would argue this country. Um, people want to come here, there's amazing jobs here, but where do they live? Where do, where do they want to go? They can't find a house. So uh, that's how we think it's a solution. We want you to come and help us on other properties as well. Um, there's lots of other developments that we want to get involved in. If you have developments that uh, are facing six year, 10 year delays, <laughs> I, I, come see us. There's Talk. the pitch. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move. But you know, this is done also in a, in a very, very collaborative approach. Um, yeah, I say that, you know, BC government doesn't really have that much say, but you know, we still work with the BC government. You know, the BC housing initiative is providing funding to our nonprofit sector, which is again, a very helpful, uh, that's a different uh, entity. It's called HEM Housing. Um, the federal government is coming in. See, that's another thing that you gotta keep in mind. You want federal government to come in and help. How do you do that? Through First Nations. Because they have a fiduciary duty. You know, they, they believe they own this land. You see my smiling? <laughs> but, you know, we work collaboratively. And so they bring all kinds of other things to bear that, you know, municipalities may not be getting from that level of government. So you got to, you know, look into this a little bit more. This has only been a 90 minutes, you know, um, session. Unfortunately, I wasn't asked a lot of questions because they want to get this guy. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, there's uh, uh, good ways to collaborate with uh, indigenous uh, peoples in this uh, city, in this province, and in this country. I think would be uh, worthwhile and very, very productive in easing the housing crisis in particular, amongst other things as well. So thank you very much for having me here today. Um, well, the question is, uh, uh, can we solve the uh, affordable housing crisis? That's where we started. And um, I think after tonight's discussion amongst all five of us and the audience and the people out uh, in the um, live streaming world is, yes, we can solve it. We know the answers. We've talked about them here. And I, I also start, I'll finish where I started, which is if we do not solve this crisis, 
We are not going to have a livable community. We, may, we will ha have an economy that will not survive because to Burns Point, people want to come here. Employers want to come here. They need workers. And if workers can't have a place to live, they're not coming here. They will go elsewhere where they can get accommodation. So we have to solve it. And we know the answers. And uh, I don't. I, I don't like the term political will because it's got. To, it's it's a population will that we need here. For every politician who is nervous about uh, approving a project, he or she's being pressured by nine people out there screaming at a public hearing. So we need a population will to bring about the solutions that we know are available. If, if the question is, are 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 we closer? Yeah. I, I, in, I've been doing this for 47 years. I have never heard supply talked about so openly. And even, you know, I, I'll, I'll repeat it again. When uh, David and I did a talk for the Urban Development Institute, under our last government, whenever the, we talked about supply, it was lining the pockets of the greedy developers. I believe public sentiment has changed, that it's starting to understand, even though there's those nine people not in my backyard, mm -hmm. there's a lot more people understanding that this, this is a crisis. And I think that we're talking openly about some government intervention to cause more supply. And I haven't seen that in my career. And we are on the threshold of maybe doing something big because we will have social unrest if people can't find shelter to live in. And we didn't even get to talk about the downtown east side and how we're solving SRAs and SROs that should be on, on government land because that is social unrest that's just, that those challenges are hurting our entire, our entire city and every city in the, in the region. But th thank you. I think these things are really worthwhile. Thank you. Thank you to the panelists. Thanks to all of you who came out tonight and made this evening possible. Thanks to the uh, organizations that sponsored us, um, BD Development, Polygon, and BC Landlord. Um, without their support, we wouldn't have been able to put on this evening, and we hope that we can do more. This is the first of what we uh, plan to make a series of live conversations in this venue that will address hot uh, topics and issues of our times. Thank you very much for your time tonight. Thanks, Stu.